And what I'm going to talk about today is the doctrine of anatta, which some of you will have come across, many of you will have heard many times before, and it's really of crucial importance to, in a sense, what we're trying to do over this three weeks, in the sense of reducing the sense of self through the practice of metta and karuna. Now, metta and karuna both work at eradicating a solid sense of self. I mean, it's quite obvious that that's the case. In the very fabric of the word karuna, which is obviously the Pali Sanskrit word for uh, compassion, is a little root. Um, And all these words, I don't need to go into it, but all of these words are derived from roots. And when you understand what the root is, you understand what the word means, basically. And then the word for compassion is the, word, is the root kri, which actually means to turn outwards. So in the very heart of the notion of compassion is turning outwards away from selfish concerns. Uh, and that's very, very important. In other words, away from an obsession with self. word gets banded around a lot in, in the West in general is the word ego which is not actually a word you find in um, Indian texts at all. The word they use very strongly is the notion of self, and this relates back to the Indian tradition. Now, before I start to talk about the doctrine, if one wants to call it that, and I hesitate even to call it a doctrine sometimes, then we have to understand what the Buddha is doing. Why is he emphasizing this? Because remember... At the heart of the awakening that the Buddha talks about is the understanding the way things really are. The heart of the awakening process is to literally wake up and see the way they actually are, not the way that we fantasize about them, not the way that we would like them to be, but the way they actually are. And he says it in numerous texts in the Pali Canon, that the way things actually are is that they are dukkha, anicca, and anatta. In other words, very simply, they are unsatisfactory, impermanent, and not self. Now, this term anatta usually often gets translated, and if you ever look at popular books on Buddhism, it often gets translated as no self. And this is not really what the Buddha is talking about at all. The word should really be translated as not-self. He is teaching what is not-self. And as in all cases with the path that the Buddha delineates or draws out for, for us is the idea of a middle way. And the doctrine of anatta is another middle way. Now, To really understand this, you have to really understand the Buddha's strategy and what he's doing. And what he is trying to do is get us to see the way they really are. (laughs) It's as simple or as difficult as that. And the way they really are is they are without any solid sense of self. Often this issue of the self gets... um, lumped in under what's called aviyakata, which actually means uh, unanswered questions. Because the Buddha often is asked, is there a self or isn't there a self? And when he's asked questions like that, he remains resolutely silent about it. (laughs) He doesn't answer, as he doesn't answer whether there's a creator or where does it all come from and things like that. He, He refuses to enter into this. Because it's a bit like an either-or situation. You know, when you're asked a question of that sort, you enter into a debate about it. And the Buddha even refuses to enter into a debate about it. Now, let's try and put this just a tiny bit technically, but then I'll explain it. When we ask questions, and some of you might have heard me say this before, but it's very important, when we ask questions... We usually ask questions, particularly in the West, as, as to what something is. This is the way we answer, ask questions. We, we probe and we ask what something is. So it has a very great history in Western thought. It goes right back to Socrates um, in 
Western philosophy. He wants to know what something is. He'll go around accosting people in society and say to them, you're a lawyer, tell me what justice is. And then by the time they finish with, they finish with them, they're usually very irritated because it's shown that they don't know anything about what justice is at all. Um, or he'll, his particular one he's very interested in is what is goodness? No wonder he got himself bumped off in Athenian society. <laughs> Irritated just about everybody in Athenian society. Um, but by the time he's finished questioning, what usually happens as a response to this is that the, the lawyer or the ethicist or whoever it is he's talking to has given him a whole range of examples. And um, Socrates will go something like, that's no good. All you've given me is examples of what justice is or what goodness is. You haven't told me what it is exactly. In other words, what makes this form of justice, justice, and that form of justice, justice, or this form of goodness, goodness, and so on and so forth. So actually, cutting a long story short, um, and they're great fun if you've never read them, do have a look at the Socratic dialogues, they're great fun. Um, to cut a long story short, what he's looking for is an essence of something that makes all forms of justice justice, all forms of goodness goodness, all forms of whatever it is he's asking question about. So the what is type questioning looks for an essence of something. You know, in other words, what is the person? He's kind of trying to get down to the bit that can't be dissolved any further to find out what they really are. It's a bit like that question, you know, what is my real self? That kind of question. What am I really? Well, that's not the kind of question that Buddha's asking. It's a kind of long-winded way of going around saying, well, that's not the kind of question the Buddha's asking at all. He's not asking what something is. The kind of question that the Buddha asks is, how is it? In other words, what he's asking is questions about the nature of composition, how something is composed. And actually what this goes to do is to actually show that the things that the Buddha is inquiring into are processes. They are not things at all. So when we start looking at the person, what we're not looking for is an essence. What we're looking for, or what we're extrapolating um, upon inquiry, is a process, a set of processes, a set of interconnected processes. Nothing else. In other words, the processes constitute what we call a self. So, again, coming back to where I started from, the Buddha isn't into the business of is there a self or isn't there a self? He's not asking that sort of question. He's not engaged in that sort of inquiry. He's saying, how is this phenomena, which we call a self or a person, how does it function? How does it operate? And then he starts to analyze what might be seen to constitute a person. I made a comment, I think it was probably on the first night, I can't remember, um, that when we look in the original languages, I mean, Pali is one of the earliest languages, and when we look in Sanskrit as well, that Buddhism doesn't use nouns, it uses verbs. Uh, gives you a very great clue, of course, what we're dealing with is process. What we're not dealing with is things at all. So I gave you a little example of saying, actually, well, when we talk about sangsara, it's not a place. We're talking about a mode of being which is sangsara-ing. When we're talking about its opposite, we're not talking about a place called nirvana or a thing called nirvana. What we're talking about is another way of being, being called nirvana-ing. That's what we're dealing with. It's a simple verb form, that's all, in the original language. Equally so, when we come to look at all the elements which constitute the so-called person. Now, the Buddha, in describing his doctrine of anatta, I say doctrine, what he's really doing is saying, this is how 
the person is constituted. Our most fundamental way of trying to understand person is initially in terms of five categories. Again, I'm probably saying things you've heard, but hopefully I'm saying it in a slightly different way. He initially does it in terms of five distinct categories, which are then further broken up in later Buddhism into myriads of other forms, um, generally in a collection of works which is known as Abhidharma or Abhidhamma in Pali. But the initial analysis is into five forms, and these are called khandas or skandhas in Sanskrit, um, which really translates as aggregates or heaps. Um, it's very simple, because when the Buddha was describing this, he took a, a pile of rice and he divided it up into five heaps when he was talking to illustrate what he was doing. And the first, there is actually another <coughs> reason for it, but I, I won't go into that, it's too complex. Um, but the first element that he started to talk about was physicality, was the physical form, he called this rupa. Uh, and Rupa here wasn't, again, just dealing with something unchanging. Rupa was dealing with the changing nature of physical form. So it dealt with all the processes of the body. Now, early Buddhists, you know, at the time of the Buddha, um, including you know, Indian society in general, had a reasonably good understanding of anatomy and physical processes, simply because there are things called charnel grounds, <laughs> <laughs> which... Uh, Buddhist monks, even to these days, sort of haunt, um, watching dissolution and decay. So they had a pretty good idea of what was going on in the body. And so Rupa covered everything, which was obviously the harder nature of the physical form, such as bone and nails and hair and teeth and all these sorts of things. But it also covered all the fluid processes, lymph and blood. Um, and everything else. And so it was actually really talking about the process of physicality. And you see this when it's taken up in Abhidharma materials, it's broken down into even fine, what they call Rupadharmas, which make up our sense of physicality. It was also about the way that we sensed physicality. And they talked about it particularly in terms of four elements, you know, the four traditional elements, you know, earth, fire, air, and water. You know, just to give you an example, fire was to do with temperature, Earth was to do with solidity and so on and so forth. I think you can probably guess the rest. So these were to do with our ways of sensing physicality. Now, what the Buddha was saying is, is if we grasp after the physical, I hope you know where I'm going with this, if we grasp after the physical as being some kind of self, then we're in for a, a huge fall. <laughs> Because um, there's that thing of looking in the mirror and seeing things changing. <laughs> you know, we see things change. You know, we look at photographs of ourselves when we were young, and we see that we've changed tremendously, and we'll change all the way physically up to death. So if physicality is going to constitute a self, and the self here in Indian thought, and one has to put it in the context of Indian thought, is deemed to be an unchanging phenomena. In other words, a permanent self, something which doesn't change, the essence of the individual. Vaguely like a soul, but not quite like it, because Indian thought doesn't use the language of the soul at all. It talks about the Atman, it talks, which is in Pali, Atta, which is why it's Anatta. It talks about the self. Now, the self in the Indian thought that was around at the period of the Buddha, primarily came out of a set of texts which was known as the Upanishads. Some of you might have read, even read them, or some of them. There were two principal Upanishads which were around at the time of the Buddha. The Buddha even quotes from them at times. Sometimes he deliberately misquotes them to make fun of them uh, also. So he was obviously well-versed in what was being talked about. And they talked about the Atman which um, was the essential element of the individual, the unchanging element. In early Indian thought, this also meant the breath as well. It was linked. And for those of you who either come German origin or know any German, will link it because actually art men means is the verb for breath, breathing in German. 
So it's the same link here. It meant breath. But it, what it meant by the time of the Buddha was the essential element of the individual. So what the Buddha is doing by starting this analysis of Rupa um, is starting to investigate where, if there was a self, it could possibly lie in all of the processes. What is what I'm going to try and show, of course, is you can't possibly have a permanent, unchanging self at all. And if you try to grasp after any of the five elements, and I'll just say this before I go through the rest of them, if you try to grasp after any of the five elements, all you're going to create is dukkha. In other words, if I try to grasp after my physical form as being my essential self, and not that anybody, I think, would be crazy enough to, uh, but even if we did, we are going to create dukkha for ourselves. Because I'm going to look in the mirror one day and go, ooh, <laughs> it's changed. Yeah. And get miserable about it, because it's unsatisfactory. Then... Um, in his analysis, and I'll go through this rather quickly, I won't spend too much time on it, but in his analysis he also goes into the next element, which is Vedana, feeling. So those of you who've done Vipassana meditation will know there's an awful lot of time spent on identifying feelings here. Feeling here is like an immediate sensation, it's nothing emotional. Let's make that very clear, because often people are confused in, in the West, because feeling often in the West... Uh, in English particularly, is used to denote emotion here. Now, that's not the case in the technical languages of Buddhism. When we talk about Vedana, we're talking about uh, sensation, a bare sensation, the immediacy of a sensation, which either strikes us as, you should know, those who've done Vipassana, as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. That covers the range of your feelings. Yeah. And actually, the emotional story often gets built on the back of that immediate sensation. Because we have physical sensations and we have mental sensations. And then we try to tell ourselves nice little narrative stories. Or actually, not tell ourselves narrative stories about why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. Or why I dislike what I dislike. Or why I like what I like. So we build ourselves vast little narratives out of out of our feeling. So Vedana. Well, Vedana itself is unstable, of course, isn't it? And any of you who've done any uh, Vipassana retreats will know um, that if it's not actually out-and-out out physical pain, and even if it is sometimes, it would in changes in its intensity. <coughs> Ordinary little sensations will change from being pleasant into unpleasant, unpleasant back into pleasant, and then sometimes into neither. And they will continue to change. Uh, throughout our lives, even our immediate feelings about phenomena change. You know, we start off as children having a range of feelings and delineations in terms of the sensations we like. And perhaps in later life they turn into things we dislike. You know, usually to the annoyance of other people uh, who have known us and say, yeah, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> so that's occurring as well. In other words, if we try to attach ourselves to feeling, again, I don't think anybody would possibly be crazy enough to want to attach themselves to feelings as being their real self, then you're onto a loser because feelings will change and they will change throughout your life and they will continue to change up until your death. Then we get into another element which might possibly be identified as a self. Our sense of discrimination, perception, it's usually translated as, which is sanya, or sanyana in, in Sanskrit. Sanya is actually a big category here. Um, and I'm going through these very quickly, you're getting snapshots of this, by the way. Um, sanya is a big, big category which includes all of our powers of discrimination. The actual technical way it's described in the text is the ability to see an object, to mark it for recognition. In other words, to re-experience it, to re-perceive it. Well, I don't think it takes a great flight of the imagination to see that the most basic way that we um, recognise things is through language. So language is an enormous part of what Sanya is about. 
because you know we start to discriminate things, don't we? If you become an expert in a field, you start to make finer and finer discriminations about something. Say, I'm, I don't know, it's not my field at all, but you know, about trees or something. And you start to see them all as trees, and you start to see them as beech and oak and all the rest of the various categories of trees as you become more expert at recognising them. So one of the big areas that we use for recognising things is language. Well, language isn't sufficient, so you're going to have something else, something called memory in this. Two. So memory is part of perception and discrimination, too. So it's a big category which includes most of our ways of discriminating and identifying phenomena that we uh, have and possess. Now, as we can see, that also does not remain the same, or I hope you see it doesn't remain the same, because throughout our lifetime um, it will change. We start off with a fairly narrow range of discrimination as children. Through education, perhaps, the increase in vocabulary and everything else, we begin to make greater and greater discriminations. And if the disaster scenario happens, towards old age you start to lose it. <laughs> Again. You know, in other words, you end up in the worst possible scenario, almost being like you started not being able to make much discrimination because memory has gone in all of this. And so I really do think that if you really attach yourself to that one as being yourself, again, you are betting the wrong horse here as being the self. So the Buddha is showing there's not self attached to the concept of discrimination and perception because it's changing, it's unstable, Conditions will happen, you know, can have an accident and get brain damage, for example, and our powers of discrimination will go very quickly. Alzheimer's may onset. I'm giving you a disaster scenario here, aren't I? The, <laughs> the real miserable <laughs> thing. I mean, Alzheimer's might happen, and one of the things that goes with Alzheimer's, of course, is memory, the ability to hold anything. And so even the sense of self drops away in there. Yeah. So actually, a lot of what we have as ourself is constituted through memory. It's my ability to remember certain things throughout my life that have happened. The fact I can remember incidents in my early childhood, but I might not remember what I did last week. So memory itself isn't infallible. It's extremely partial too. And as I say, with, with kind of worst-case scenarios, then your ability to constitute even uh, an idea of who you are will disappear as well. So memory is, as I say, is shown not to be, and sanya as a whole category of discrimination is shown as to be not-self. So I've taken you through three so far. Rupa, Vedna, Sanya. In all of them, in this case, what the Buddha has shown is there is not self involved in them. On to the fourth category, which actually is, a, again, an enormous category, which is the category of sanskaras or sankaras. Yeah, the category of sankaras is all of your habitual tendencies. Yeah, the actual technical translation of it is karmic formations. In other words, this is the repository of karma. And perhaps I ought to say a few words about that because it's vastly misinterpreted. Karma is simply action with intention, which produces consequence. Yeah. Now, repeated actions with certain intentions will set up certain patterns. In other words, certain karmic determinations. Yeah. And that is all it is. There's nothing metaphysical particularly about the notion of karma in, in the slightest. What it's saying is every action has a consequence. In other words, I cannot be in the world without acting, thinking, doing, speaking. Therefore, what I think, say and do has consequences. And actually, I don't know in most cases what the consequences will be at all. I have no way of predicting Generally speaking, all you can say is that unwholesome actions will give rise to, at some point, unwholesome consequences. 
wholesome actions to wholesome consequences. So, in other words, this is the reason why one has to be utterly clear about your intentions in terms of your actions. Because we don't know what the consequences of those actions will be. And that's the reason why. So the, the Buddha actually is bringing the category of ethics into thinking, speaking, and acting. So that we know, or as clear as possibly we can be, given there's an awful lot of you know, blockages and obstructions and that blocking our view, to try and get clear as we possibly can about what our intentions behind our actions are. Because otherwise, we're going to get a lot of unforeseen consequences. Yeah. And we are anyway. <laughs> so that's the kind of situation we're in. We're going to be in. And really, all of these karmic formations, these karmic determinations, are the repository of sankharas. Now, I've spoken about it in terms of action consequence. And that makes it sound very deterministic, doesn't it? So, you know, I'm the result of my karma. This is kind of stuff you often hear in India. You know, my karma, I'm here. I can't do anything about it. Well, actually, your karma, uh, in other words, your, act, your reaction to a karmic consequence is further karma. So actually, karma is never at an end. <laughs> you know, even if it's true that you are the result and product of your karma at this moment in time, that's not an end, that's simply a beginning. Because how I deal with whatever circumstances I find myself in at this moment in time determines what further karma is going to arise. So there's only karma enmeshed in karma, which is enmeshed in karma itself. There is never an end to it. So sitting there and saying, this is my karma, I can't do anything about it, is one form of karma. Um, doing something about it is another form of karma. Yeah, so you can't avoid it here. Uh, and given the complexity, and I'd have to tell you a very long story, which would be a whole Dharma talk in itself. Uh, given the complexity of this, we are, if you like, the products of all of our thoughts, speech and actions. Yeah. Some of those will be obvious to you, and some of them will not be obvious to you. Yeah. In other words, we have dispositions, propensities to say certain things, propensities to do certain things, and propensities to think in certain ways. Not identically, but in patterning, in certain forms and patterns, which are modified in relation to the world. So they don't remain exactly the same. They undergo modification. Because we project them on the world and how they act in the world depends on how we receive them back and what we do with it then. Now the word sanskara in um, Sanskrit is related to the word sangsara as well. And the root of that word, without getting into too much etymology, means to go round in circles. It literally means to go round in circles. So any form of sangsara is the tendency to keep going round and round in circles, fueled by sanskaras, fueled by certain forms of activity. Either mental, speech, or physical. So those activities will fuel our sangsaric going around in circles. Uh, I think it's a wonderful description. How do you go around? Have you ever felt that mm. going around and around in circles, yeah. just making the same kinds of mistakes again and again and again? Not identical, but similar mm. in your life. Yeah, and when we have those tendencies to kind of look back and say, I'm, I'm making the same mistake as I made 10 years ago, well, you probably are. <laughs> or something very similar, anyway. Yeah. So what I'll talk about tomorrow when we get into this is actually the second link yeah, of the chain of dependent origination, which actually is sanskaras. Because that fuels the whole process of going round and round in circles. So much of what we're doing 
in Vipassana, in even metta practice, is coming face to face, or I don't know what other metaphor to use here. <laughs> anyway, coming into some recognition of habit patterns, particularly mental habit patterns, which will keep raising themselves, going round and round and round and round and round, again and again and again. Now, how deeply they are embedded in what sometimes we conceive of as ourselves, you will know if you've ever had a habit challenged. <laughs> and you get all defensive. You know, when somebody says to you, you've got that rather irritating habit. And you'll say, well, that's the way I am. <laughs> as if it's completely unchangeable. Totally, you no, know, it can't possibly be changed at all. And what the Buddha is trying to get us to see, of course, is that none of those are beyond change. Because all of those current formations depend on causes and conditions. Change the causes and conditions and you change the consequences. Yeah. Deal with your karma as you are now. Change it in terms of acting in a wholesome way with whatever the situation is you find yourself in. And you will produce different consequences as if, uh, other than if you do nothing. In which case, it will kind of work its way out deterministically. And you can see this with very clear examples, can't you? And I only want to dwell very briefly on this. But say, for example, you tell a lie. Now, one way of dealing with that is to tell a lie and say nothing. You know, not admit to it. And it will, if you like, perhaps get caught out in time. And it will produce a certain consequence. There might be, you tell a lie, then you admit to it. And that will have an entirely different consequence to the consequence it might have 10, 15 years later. If it's not, you know, if, it, if nothing is done about it. So you can see this. It's a very practical teaching. The Buddha, I might always emphasize, despite the fact that, that probably at this stage it sounds slightly technical. I hope it doesn't. But even if it does, the Buddha always was getting us to look practically at things. So when he's trying to teach us about what is not self, he's trying to get us to practically reorient ourselves in the world. And one way of getting to undermine this solid sense of self are practices like metta, but also vipassana directly, by seeing the composition of what's going on, seeing what is actually happening in this. Okay, I've got one final category to talk about, which is consciousness, vinyana, which is the final. So you've got form, feeling. Form covers all the physical processes, as I've said. Form, feeling, sensation, discrimination, perception, karmic formations, or I just call them habits, actually, mostly. <laughs> and then finally, consciousness. Now, Buddhism was, um, even from the time of the Buddha, quite radical in saying that consciousness was never a thing. It was a dependent arising. It had to arise in dependence on causes and conditions. It never just, there was never just pure consciousness. There was never just pure consciousness. And again, putting that slightly in a historical context for a second, this was the Buddha's response to the idea in the Upanishads that there was pure consciousness. And pure consciousness was identified as the self. It was called Atman. Mm -hmm. This was the pure nature of consciousness, which was identical to the nature of everything, which was called Brahman. The two terms were synonymous, ultimately. One expressed consciousness as this unique, unchanging thing in the individual, whereas the other term, Brahman, actually um, expressed it in terms of the vast panoply of the universe that we see, which was believed to be a pure form of consciousness. Now, the Buddha says there is no such thing as pure consciousness. All consciousness arises dependent on an object. It has to have an object. You can, if you want to engage in a little thought experiment, you know, um, is uh, can you have consciousness 
in yourself without being conscious of something. Because <laughs> you're generally conscious of you know, the world, all the physical stuff in the world, but a lot of the time, as you know in meditation, you're conscious of fear, anxiety. Whoops, there's a bit of joy. Um, back to the fear and the anxiety. <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth. In other words, our consciousness is always attached to something. And the two arise together. The object and consciousness arise together. So if we listed our five categories, which constitute the self, or lack of it, in terms of any fixed entity, then we'd line them up, you know, we'd list them down, and you'd have consciousness at the bottom. What is consciousness consciousness of? All of the above. In other words, we're conscious of physical processes, sensations arising, discriminations, bits of language and bits of narrative and recognition, and an awful lot of habit. That's what we're conscious of. Now, what the Buddha is trying to get us to see by this analysis, and this is the simplest analysis, is that in that process, or these five processes, because I hope you can see they are processes, there's nothing static, because consciousness will keep changing as the objects change, the karma keeps changing because of our response with the world and the interaction with it, discriminations are changing because of age conditions and um, in terms of um, knowledge and vocabulary and all the sort of conditions that make up <coughs> our ability to perceive and discriminate. Our feelings are waxing and waning, changing from pleasant to unpleasant and vice versa and often going through the category of neutral and the physical form does not remain the same at all. Wherein is there a permanent self in that? However, we can talk about there being if you like, an entity which we would nominally call a self, which is dependent on those five categories functioning. Yeah. So the answer to the nature of the self from the Buddha's point of view is that the self is a process. And it's dependent upon causes and conditions. And so his real quibble, if you like, is with the idea of there being any permanent entity which constitutes you. In fact, as soon as you start to get the idea of something permanent, then we start to grasp. What is actually showing, or attempting to show, this is why it's so important in Buddhist thought, and why I've introduced it at this stage, is actually when you're supposedly grasping after yourself, because we have this category often in Buddhist thought, which is called self-grasping, attitude, you know, desire arising out of self-grasping, and everything else. What are you exactly grasping after? You're grasping after no thing. <laughs> so in other words, instead of there being a permanent self, there is a process which is empty of self empty of any permanent form of self. Now some of you may have come across this notion of emptiness. An emptiness of self is exactly that, empty of being anything permanent and abiding that doesn't change. So as you can see, it goes right back to the Buddha's early teaching. Everything is changing. Why are you different? In fact, if you ever think about this, and I don't know how deeply you've ever thought about this, is, you know, one kind of admits almost, even if it's only intellectually, but often we can feel it sometimes a little bit emotionally. Everything is changing. I look at the world and things change. You know, we're going through the seasons. We see that very little remains the same if at all in the world. And we might, as I say, have just an intellectual grasp, but most of we see that. So why do we have this sudden idea... It sounds rather arrogant, doesn't it? Um, everything is changing, but not me. Which, in a way, is what the problem is. That's where the problem. Everything is changing, but not me. I'm not changing. Or if I do, the real core of me doesn't change. So that's the problem. 
And what the Buddha is trying to get us to see by inquiring, and there's lots and loads of vipassana techniques and throughout the traditions of Buddhism of trying to get you to see that you are simply this process. Metta is another way of actually, in a sense, of getting us outside of ourselves and showing us there is nothing solid there at all. Showing as there is nothing which remains abidingly the same. In other words, in true responsiveness, what we call a self continuously changes in relation to the situation that's required. So if we translate compassion as a form of responsiveness, different selves are required at different times. And you can see that, can't you, ethically. Different situations demand different things of us if we're truly to be responsive in a situation. Because otherwise, a kind of there is this distinct dualism operating where I'm simply applying me to this situation and this unchanging me. Now, that does not happen. The practice of metta and the practice of karuna, in a sense, is to get us to see that our responsiveness can change. It can move. It does not remain static whatsoever. Now, some of you have heard me say this before, but when I was actually in one of the monasteries in India for quite a long period of time, we had to go through this horrible technique of looking for the self. And we went into this day after day, <laughs> week after week of doing these techniques. And I was studying with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors at the time. And I kind of lost it <laughs> at one point. <laughs> after doing this for weeks on end, I kind of went, why are we having to do this anymore? <laughs> it's really irritating. You know, is the self here? Is the self there? Is it in this category? Is it in that category? Yeah. <laughs> And, that, and, and, and it was such a beautiful response that he came back to me after, you know, after I kind of blew my top about this. And he said, um, well, you know, it's a bit like losing your wallet or your purse. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Being really compassionate. <laughs> and he said, well, you know what happens when you lose your wallet and your purse? And I said, what do you do? And he said, well, you know, don't you? He said, you look for it in every possible place where it might be. Until you convince yourself you've lost it. <laughs> in this case, convince yourself you never had it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, so that's what you're doing. You're actually seeing, uh, in terms of some of the processes, that actually where you believe to be a permanent abiding self, there isn't one. There is simply an absence. That absence goes under a technical name in Buddhist thought as shunyata, emptiness. In other words, we are empty of any permanent self. We're not empty of a process which we label self. But it's a mere labeling. Now I make that distinction because some people get sometimes people get the very wrong end of the stick in thinking there is no self. There's actually a self-shaped hole <laughs> in me. <laughs> you know, where there used to be a self, there's now just a big hole. And uh, that's not what it's about. <laughs> What it's actually saying is what we've done is we have made a category mistake. We are looking for something over and above the processes. Now, there's a very old um, idea that I can give you to explain what I mean by that, by what I mean by a category mistake. I know I was there last week. When um, tourists come to Oxford University... Okay, I'd like to see Oxford University. And so one of the people who work there might take them around and see Balliol College, Christchurch, Magdalen College, and take them around all the colleges. And then they suddenly say, I've seen the colleges, where's the university? <laughs> and it's a bit like that with the self. What you're doing is looking at all the components which constitute this thing that we nominally call Oxford University or 
a self. The self is nothing over and above those processes. That's all. Now, I say that and it's important that you get this correctly because, uh, and not so much in your, case, in your case, because most of you are fairly experienced practitioners, but in a lot of cases when people first come to Buddhism, and they might be rather fragile, might have a very kind of diminished sense of self anyway, um, and it actually can be very destructive. You know, and I'm almost saying this in a way to be aware of how even you talk about this doctrine to people sometimes. You say, actually, you thought you had a self, but you haven't got one at all. <laughs> you know, and you can see how silly it sounds, you know, put it in this way. But it can actually be very destructive to somebody, you know, who might have a very fragile sense of self in the first place. Yeah. But what we're really trying to see in terms of this doctrine is there is no fixed thing. There is no static thing. So instead of identity, you know, identity usually means the very same thing. What we have is continuity. Yeah. What constitutes, in a sense, ourself is, con is continuity. But who I am today, and this comes back to karma again, is dependent on who I was yesterday and the day before and the day before that. And all of the actions which bring me up to this point in time. So there is only continuity, there is not identity in that. Now I won't go into it, but it's very important actually in Buddhist ethics as well, this idea. Because there is still responsibility, even if there is not identity. You know, because we are still responsible, even though I might have changed, I am not the same person you know, as I was five years ago perhaps, or ten years ago. But we still have responsibility for our actions at that point in time that have brought us to now. Yeah. And in a way, as I say, that brings us automatically back to karma. So, there are lots of not-selves rather than selves. So, I kind of threw out a comment the other night and saying, actually, while well, part of the problem about meta and the generation of meta is we're full of ourselves. Now, that's the blockage, isn't it? We're so full of ourselves, it's very difficult because we're actually in this narcissistic state of grasping. That's in a way, when I use the term narcissism in a Western context, I'm actually saying the same thing as self-grasping. This is self-love, you know, self-aggrandizement, holding ourselves up. This is where conceit arises and all of those unwholesome, unskillful ways of being in the world most of them are constituted on the f idea of a firm foundation of a self which I'm grasping after. Yeah. Holding very precious and very dear. Whereas this movement is actually either through metta, and I actually believe in, through vipassana, seeing that the two are actually not that far apart, if at all, here is there is a whittling away by getting us out into the world by putting us into relationship of this conceit of self above other yeah. self above phenomena in other words the dualism that is created when i am a self this very low i always think is tragic this tragic, lonely self that appears to be cut off from others. Yeah. This is actually a way of reconstituting relationship. In other words, eliding self-other distinctions. This is why, when we get to it, in a text that some of you might be familiar with called the Bodhicharya Avatara by Shantideva, Shantideva in the sixth chapter says it makes no sense to talk about your pain or my pain. Only pain. That's all. Yeah, that's the problem. Dukkha, actually. That's the problem. You know, how do we work at it together? <coughs> A suggestion, of course, is through compassion. This is what's you know, being the, the story, in a sense, that's being generated in the Bodhicharya Avatara, is through compassion. In the earlier texts, through meta, empathy, and compa, 
and compassion as well. Perhaps I'll say a bit more about that tomorrow. <laughs> uh, we've got ten minutes, um, so I don't know if anybody's got. I've kind of thrown a lot at you um, in that you know, period of fifty minutes. So I wonder if there's questions. You don't have to. I mean, there's all responses about. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit more about the process of developing an understanding of emptiness through meta? I'm going to go on and talk about that throughout the week. I mean, I can touch on it very briefly. Is that, and I, in a way, I've already started to do that by laying the ground in the sense of, pun? You sort of went round it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Deliberately, because I want to kind of wait until, you know, people who are on the retreat had a little bit more experience and then to start to develop it in this way. But the most basic way, and I did allude to this, is that it's, if you like, turning the gaze initially outwards. You know, in order to not be so self-obsessed, then we've got to literally, literally or metaphorically, I don't really care, start to see that actually, oops, there are others out there in the world. You know, there are others who are also in pain, who are also suffering, want to use those terms, also experiencing vast dissatisfactions with life. In other words, there is a common bond. Um, it's that movement from aloneness to togetherness that starts to open up. Um, and I use that word deliberately because opening actually is part of the meaning of shunyatara as well, of emptiness, is beginning to open up things to see them as that we are, even when we're engaging together, in process together. That there is nothing fixed about it, there's nothing determined about it. So, coming back to a little comment I made just about the etymology of the word karuna, kri, that literal movement is initially to turn you outwards, to start to see others. Now, the moment I've done that, I've started to kind of break down firm, the firm sense of self, which is constituted in a sense by my obsession with it. You know, in other words, I make something static a lot of the time, which is actually really ultimately impossible, by my gaze. Now, I'm using metaphors here, so please you know, um, you know, be aware of this. That literally... I kind of trap the idea of myself in my own gaze. I am who I think I am. You know, this is actually moving away. I am I'm not what I think I am. Because <laughs> the thinking is simply a creating of, of something static out of something which is dynamic. Now the, the karuna and the metta starts to get us out in touch with the world and therefore starts to break down the solidity of this idea which is there which as I say and, and simply by that avert, you know, averting of the gaze away from me because there's now you and actually you um, is constituted in Buddhist terms as perhaps being more fundamental than the me. Yeah. Now, I might say something about this actually in relation to the language it's used. <coughs> We're not going to stop word using words like me, I, you, are we? Otherwise our language is going to sound very strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what we stop to start to do is undermine any sense of solidity that those terms have. You know, me as opposed to you. I, I mean, I think it works wonderfully in English, doesn't it? When you write up I, the first person pronoun, doesn't it look lonely? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all rather solitary and matchstick-like. In all of you have two letters, so it's it. not so lonely anymore. No, it's not quite so That's why I said in English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said in English, it does look rather lonely. Um, but it's starting to undermine the sense of solidity 
of, of that by this movement outwards and then you build on that you build on the initial movement of at least beginning to see that you're in a world with others and starting to undermine the sense of loneliness or threat that others constitute as well I mean I always find it terribly sad in the Western tradition you get phrases like this Mrs. Jean Paul Sartre you know with the hell is other people and his idea of hell in one of his plays is being four people locked in a room together <laughs> yeah it's 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 a very strong sense of you know yeah, we are threatened by others and this is this movement outwards and seeing that we are together you know, we are actually in we are actually interrelated i cannot be without you yeah. in fact we owe this and we'll explore this more probably next week and further um the, the very fact that I am at all depends on the kindness and generosity of others. If you think about it, you really, really think about it, <coughs> just on your most basic ways of being, being clothed, being fed, that you were brought up as a child, no matter, you know, I'm excluding obviously horrific childhoods, but, you know, being brought up as a child, nurtured, and, uh, you know, in that state of helplessness, you depended totally on others. And in fact, we are still rather childlike. We depend totally on others for our being. Yet, here I am with this sense of conceit and arrogance, all constituted on that I am different from you. <laughs> I am above you, or whatever thoughts pass through our heads at times. I don't say all the time. <laughs> but a lot of the time, those feelings are very strong about that. Yet, we're in this complete state of actual helplessness. As many of us would find out, we were suddenly shunted off onto a kind of lonely, isolated place. And even then, we'd depend on lots of other things for our existence. So, part of the reason for this whole teaching is to get away from that arrogance, that conceit of thinking that you are independent you're not. You're totally dependent. And uh, I kind of, it's a long-winded way of trying to respond to what you were asking. Was this, a, was this um, um, philosophical analysis of the Buddha's um, internal function rather than um, categorization? Was this an entirely novel? Particularly yes. with regard to the self? It was entirely, entirely novel. nothing. It drew on nothing else. It was entirely novel in his, in his own time. I mean, the concept, I mean, I won't go into it because it's a sort of socio historical thing, but in, in the Buddhist time, there were two basic forms of religious practice, or actually, actually three constituted. But you have Brahmanism, which was a form of religious practice entirely based on what you do, did in the household, and was actually a sacrificial religion. It didn't have any analysis whatsoever. Dharma is a term that's still used. Dharma meant what you actually did here, what duties you had according to your grouping in society. Um, it's often wrongly called caste, but it isn't. It's actually varna, which actually means your class in society. So the Buddha supposedly came from the varna of the Katya, the warriors um, here, or Kshatriya in, in Sanskrit. Um, whereas all the priests and the scholars came from the varna of the Brahmin. Now, in Indian society at that period, if you were one... You didn't do the duties of the other, and so on and so forth. There was actually four main classes. So that was that constitute. There was um, Jainism, which was another form, which was, again, a renouncer tradition. Jainism was extreme. And actually, one way of looking at the Buddha's middle way in terms of his own society is to look at it as, an ex as the middle way between the extreme of Jainism and the extreme of Brahmanism, of, of what we would now call certain forms of Hinduism. In other words, one was household dependent and the other was a complete, utter renunciate sect which wanted to stop karma altogether. <laughs> um, bra um, giant monks, um, even to this day, some of them, I mean, for example, there's a whole class which are called Dagambara in India, which are sky-clad. They go around naked altogether. So that was extreme. Um, they didn't shave their heads. They plucked out each hair one by one. 
<laughs> they weren't allowed to have more than three hours sleep. <laughs> and so on and so on. I could go on. So you can see it's a stream form of asceticism there. And then, then you had the kind of yogin-type traditions, of which actually some of the meditation practices probably originated in some of those areas, and particularly the samadhi-type practices within certain forms of forest renunciation that went on. And you get that in the mythology of the Buddha's life. You know, when he talks about when he renounces the hedonism of the palace, he goes off to the forest, doesn't he? And he so calls, supposedly studies with uh, yogins in the forest. There's no analysis in all of that. The only answer that you got within the Upanishadic tradition, which that yogic tradition was linked to, was there was a real ultimate self which was called Atman and it was permanent. And that was linked to the fabric of the universe which they called Brahman. That was the only analysis around at that time. Later on, post or slightly contemporaneous with late, probably towards the Buddha's death, you're getting the growth of more philosophical systems in India. But this is kind of... Again, this is stuff of scholarship, not practice. Now, in a way, when you said philosophical analysis, I was, kind of, I was saying the Buddha is a practical thinker. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a philosophical analysis. Because yeah. what he's trying to do is get you to see that that is what's going on. Yeah. As he says himself very clearly, I don't give you anything that's extraneous. Yeah. He said, I don't give you more than you need, and I don't give you less than you need. To achieve, you know, the cessation of dukkha. So I think this is the way you have to hear this, and I don't know whether it came across or not. I mean, I hope it did to a certain extent, but having to present it obviously in the way you do is to go through the categories and that, and it makes it sound like a rather say philosophical analysis, you know, scholarly thing, and it isn't. It's actually something extremely practical, as you probably gathered. You know, when you know, are you your feelings? Are you your consciousness? Are you this? Are you that? The kind of questions that I had to go through when I was training. Um, it's a very practical issue. Very pra- and having directly practical consequences when you begin to hold yourself in a slightly different way through that, that form of analytic investigation. Yeah. Is that also what Buddha meant by uh, meta? To uh, find out for yourself I sometimes sitting here these days doing uh, metta, I have a feeling like, um, what's the meaning? What's the? I know very well what the Sikhasana does, but bringing me every time back to the one sentence, may mm. I be? Um, is it also that I? find out within myself what I discovered was there is no self because I never know what comes up up after I say this Mm. so that I find out for myself it's very much about finding out for oneself yes this is not I mean I might make this very clear um, if I haven't done so already none of this is about believing in a doctrine of not self that's That's why I said it's not a doctrine Mm although I used that term when I started. It's really not that. These, this is a way of investigating. Yeah. And actually, the investigation, when you start to um, pursue it, you break it down into <coughs> even finer categories of what's going on here. So instead of one form of consciousness, we get 121 different types of consciousness arising. You know, we get 81 different types of mental states arising and passing away. So in other words, you're breaking it fine and fine down. In each case, discovering each level that you operate on, as further you go down, that it's not self. In other words, I mean, putting it very simple and kind of almost um, jokingly, there's nothing personal about it. But then why do you make this category? Uh, Like we start with ourselves, I understand that. Mm. Then... uh, why are these categories? Sometimes when I'm saying to the category come today, a very good friend, mm-hmm. I see other ones pop in and they say, why not? We do. <laughs> 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 well, it's a way of... It's a way of we belong all... together. 
It's not exclusive. This is, remember that all of these things, I mean, meta, what we're engaging at the moment is a training. That is all. It's not an end. It's a training. You know, it's a help to get us to an end. You know, the Vipassana techniques, the Metta techniques, the Karuna techniques, they're just that. They're techniques. That's all. They're not the constant. Some people get terribly, terribly possessive about their particular technique. You know, I only do this type of meditation practice. <laughs> and actually, that's, that's actually not what it's about. You know, it's, a, it's a means. It's not an end at all. So this is training. That's why, we, and training, trying to bring intentions in in a particular way that starts to just gently start to eat away at this solid sense of self that we have. Yeah. Because you've all heard it now. Do you experience any less self? <laughs> <laughs> I would probably think not. Um, I don't know, because uh, obviously I can't get inside everyone's experience, but, you know, I probably think not. But now we have a tool for investigation, a way of, of starting to investigate things. You know? yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.